0: Well, as you know, we have been uh, <clears throat> coming through the dispensations and <clears throat> I, I don't know, you know, I don't know of anything that will put your Bible into some c- kind of perspective for you better than understanding the dispensations. And we talked about it early in our, in our when we started these, how that, <clears throat> you know, most of Christianity either totally rejects it or gets it out of whack. Most Baptist churches, the pastors, Um, I don't think it's the fact that they don't uh, believe it. I just think that they're so stupid they never got that depth of the Word of God. So they never get a handle on it, an understanding of it. Uh, So without a doubt, if you're ever going to put your Bible together, you have to be able to see how it rightly divided. That's what dispensations do. And uh, the Bible is an unending book of rightly dividing. Once you rightly divide the dispensation, then you got to rightly divide the Bible itself. Then you got to rightly divide the chapters. Then you got to rightly divide the books. It never ends, but it certainly starts with you getting an understanding of how God uh, dispensationally uh, laid out the Bible in sections for you, and, and that's what we're going through. Having said that, last time... Uh, we talked about the dispensation from the first coming of Christ to Acts chapter 7. Of all the dispensations, that is the crucial one. If you don't get that one down, you're not going anywhere with your Bible. And this is where every fundamental Baptist, almost without exception, certainly the neo-evangelical crowd, this is where they break their neck. Uh, They just can't they, they never, From my experience and from dealing with them for so many years, it's almost like they, they can't get past a certain point in the Bible. And they fall into that trap where, you know, I, I tell you all the time that these guys, they can know a lot about the Bible without knowing the Bible. And there is a huge difference between the two. And they just never get past a certain point. A lot of that is their own mentality of the of who they hang out with and the system that they came out of. Um, they are products of that system, and that system limits them when it comes to the scriptures. Uh, every one of them that i 've ever met with, with there are exceptions to it, but they, they just they, they, they break their neck on that dispensation between the first coming of Christ and Acts chapter seven they just can 't get it. And if you don't get that, and that's why we spent so much time with it, if you don't get that, then, you know, you're never going to go anywhere with any depth to the Bible. You know, turn over to Romans 16, uh, the last chapter there, and uh, I want to show you what Paul said on it. And it says in verse 25, 1625, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, not the gospel that Paul was preaching, uh, to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. Now that mystery he's talking about there is the church. And he's clearly telling you that God kept that a secret. Now somebody would say, well, Bob, you go back in the Old Testament and you show types of the church all the time. Yeah, that's true. But I can only do that because we're into the church age and the New Testament now has been clearly written and defined. So it takes the flashlight of the New Testament to unearth the darkness of the Old Testament and the types. If you didn't have that, and certainly in Paul's time and up to the Old Testament, God didn't reveal the mystery of the church to anybody. And uh, he says, but now is made manifest uh, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. So God kept that aspect a secret. <clears throat> and you don't find any place in the Old Testament where he, he directly makes a reference to the church age. It's all in type. And those types only become clear once the New Testament is established and we move into that time period. And uh, other than that, you know, there's nothing there. This is why that dispensation between uh, the first coming of Christ and Acts chapter 7 is so vital. Uh, God never does anything um, without doing it through a trans- transition, uh, everything works through a transition. And, you know, the church age, um, well, is what we're going to look at today will be the end result of that transition. And that transition is found uh, in the first coming of Christ up to Acts 7. That's why in your Bible, you the three key books that give people trouble all the time and where all the heresy comes from will be the three transitional books of Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. Matthew transitions you from the, uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament Acts transitions you from the Jew to the Gentile, or the church. And then Hebrews transitions you from the church back into the tribulation period. And uh, you, you, you have to see and understand that everything that God does, uh, historically, anyhow, it will always work through a transition. When he uh, established the nation of Israel in 1948, he just didn't wake up one morning and decide to do that. That transition goes back all the way back to the 1880s with the with the uh, Zionist movement. So it took, you know, almost 60 years for that transition to take place. So we see that, you know, that those things happen. In the book of Acts, you'll find that God is bringing in the church, he's transitioning it, and you'll find that the people who... Uh, were following John's baptism or even uh, the preaching of the apostles, they all have to now have time to come to the truth of the resurrection of Christ. And that, again, is, uh, is a transition. And, uh, you know, from the, from the Baptist mindset, uh, you know, the, uh, the church officially begins, you know, in their mind with, with the New Testament. <clears throat> and that's, that's about as deep as they go with it. And yet, if you're going to really get into it and you want to have some kind of exactness with the scriptures, you have to realize that that is too broad of approach. I mean, I know you close your Bible in Malachi and you open and it says the New Testament of Jesus Christ and you suddenly, you know, voila, you're in the New Testament. And yet we know from the Bible that that's not exactly true. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John may be in the New Testament in a canon sense of order of the Bible, but you're told in the Hebrews that the New Testament does not come into effect till the death of the testator. That's in every one of those books, that is the end chapter where Christ is crucified and gets resurrected. So that means technically speaking, that everything up to those books are still under an Old Testament scenario, uh, even though you know it's placed in the New Testament books. It's things like that that you have to grasp. Those are the little things that unlock the scriptures. And if you don't see that, then you wind up just being like the rest of them and you really fall on your face when it comes to trying to get the Bible put together in some kind of workable format for you. Now, The church coming into effect, and, you know, that's been a question that people have asked all down through, you know, forever in my day. You know, when did the church start? And every pastor got his own idea. You know, most of them don't really have anything to do with the scriptures. And the reason why they have to make the church either in Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John at the first coming of Christ is because they don't get Acts chapter 7 going back to the first coming. When you understand what God is doing from the first coming of Christ to Acts chapter seven, like we laid out last time, then you understand that there's no Monday was the Old Testament, Tuesday was the New Testament and start of the church. It's a transition. And we've already seen from Luke um, Romans chapter sixteen that that was a mystery that God kept secret. Even in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Nobody knows anything about the church. And this is where the average Baptist pastor falls down, or the average Christian really falls down when it comes to the Bible. They're thinking that the church is starting in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the reason for that is, again, is they find places in there where it talks about the church. He says to Peter in in Matthew chapter 16, uh, thou art Peter upon this rock and, and, you know, and the gates of hell went out, and he talks about the church. They think that every time they find the word church, it's talking about the church that you and I are part of in the New Testament. And of course, that's not true. But here again, it goes back to their not being able to really have a depth with the scriptures. If you want a biblical approach to when the church actually starts, It has to be viewed through the first coming of Christ in Acts chapter 7, that dispensation, which was the seventh one. If you don't see it through that, then you're going to get messed up. And fundamentally, we know that based on that, that in Matthew chapter 10 is where the church is called out with the sending of the 12. It goes into effect, Matthew chapter 28, at the resurrection of Christ, it gets empowered in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. Then after the final rejection of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 7, or the Jews in Acts chapter 7, it gets revealed by Paul um, from Acts chapter 10 to the end of the book. And that's the only way you can logically put it into concept. Uh, But it has to be built around Acts chapter uh, 7 backwards to... Uh, the first coming of Christ. Now, here's the deal. Somebody would say, well, you know, if it's called out in Matthew chapter 10, then the church uh, began then. No, no, no. In the Bible, nothing nothing is alive until it gets the breath of life. And the church didn't get the breath of life till Acts chapter, or Acts chapter 2. And then God held on to that to see what the Jews was going to do. Because that breath of life coming into the church just as easily, and this is where it really gets confusing, could have, if the church age would have been postponed, could have come into the nation of Israel and that would be Ezekiel chapter 36 where they get the breath of life in them. And so the thing is, yeah, it's called out in Matthew chapter 10, but nobody knew it. God knew it, but he was keeping it a secret. I know it because the church aid did come into effect and I have the rest of the New Testament to run me back and show me. It goes into the effect of the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, no question. But nobody knew it. It gets empowered in Acts chapter one and two, but nobody knows it. Because up to Acts chapter seven, the nation of Israel would have been that church. Because the word church means called out. And Israel is called the church of the wilderness over in the book of Acts. Israel was called out. So Israel is a church. She's just not the same church that we are uh, as the embodiment of the Holy Spirit of God. But she is called out and she is a church. So up to Acts chapter 7, that church could be the nation of Israel or it could be us. When Israel made their final rejection in Acts chapter 7, then, and I showed you last week how at that moment, and I don't know how you missed this, everything changes. From Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 11, they're first called Christians in Antioch. The the, the contrast is so great. I, I just don't understand how a guy can miss it other than the fact that he's limited by his teaching that he has been brought up in the system. And, uh, you know, I was brought up in that system too, but the system didn't take to me. And it's a thing where uh, I know why they think the way that they think. And I have discussions with them all the time. Uh, they'll call me about something, and they just can't get past that point. And, and I get it It's because of the mindset that they were brought up in. And let's face it, the mindset that these guys were brought up in did not give itself to studying the scriptures and rightly dividing it. It brought itself and lent itself to getting guys' books, hearing guys' sermons, going to Bible college, doing this. And in those identities, you never learn the Bible. You just simply learn a lot of things about the Bible. And that's where the failure is. And so when they get into the dispensation between the first coming of Christ and Acts chapter 7, they they don't see it. They can't see it. They lose it completely. And that messes them up through the rest of uh, the time. And it's a thing where the the whole aspect that it's called out in Matthew chapter 10, it goes into effect at the resurrection. It gets empowered in Acts chapter 1 and 2. But it was all unknown to anybody because God is waiting to see what the nation of Israel is going to do in Acts chapter 7. And when they make their final rejection, it all pivots on that verse and that chapter, and off it goes. But now the church is no longer Israel. The church now is the New Testament church that was given to Paul, Romans 16, that God kept mystery, but now is going to be revealed through him. And if you don't see it that way, it's going to mess you up through through the rest of the Bible. The Bible, honest to goodness, I know it looks intimidating. The Bible is not really a hard book to get down if you just do it the right way. What makes it so hard is all the guys teaching you to do it the wrong way. And it just gets to be an endless bobwire wire entanglement that you never get out of because there's no way out of it because it just simply doesn't work that way. So once you understand that the church being revealed is a transition and you see the book of Acts as the key to that. And that's why I tell you that uh, the book of Acts, much like the book of Revelation, the whole book breaks down around two chapters. In Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 20. And everything on both sides of those chapters and in the middle, uh, is a, that's a natural division. And it's a thing where in, in Acts chapter 7, officially, in God's mind, the church age is now going to be revealed by Paul. So we'll mark that as the beginning of the church age, as far as God was concerned. In Acts chapter 20... That's the end of the book of Acts and this transitional period. In God's mind, everything now has been accomplished that he needed to have accomplished. And there was a number of things that he had to do. But from that point on, that fundamentally is the end of the book of Acts. You have eight chapters left, which is nothing more than Paul going down and being in jail. But as far as the, the, you know, and I told you many times that in Acts chapter 20, it's the church at Ephesus. And up in our chart on church history, the first church, which we'll see in a moment, is Ephesus. So you've you, you got to see that. And, you know, remember now, we are still in the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles, uh, as far as man is concerned and the Bible is concerned, uh, will run up to the end of the tribulation period. And it started with Nebuchadnezzar coming down and Shenacherib Uh, around 606 and ending the reign of the nation of Israel, kingdom of heaven going out, and the world now being put into the hands of the Gentile nations. That stays in power technically up to the second coming of Christ. And of course, the last Gentile kingdom will be the Antichrist kingdom. But from God's standpoint, and this is what you got to see, from God's standpoint... I would say in his mind, the times of the Gentiles probably ended maybe in 1917 with the Belfort Declaration, certainly by 1948. And in his mind, the times of the Gentiles are are over. You see this in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, you find uh, the whole thing is a picture of the Laodicean church age. Esther and Song of Solomon are the only two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned in any way, shape, or form. And uh, in Esther, He's not mentioned because it's a picture of the times of the uh, times that we live in right now, where Revelation chapter three verse twenty tells us that Jesus Christ is kicked out of His own church. So there is no there's no there's no reference to Him. But what you find out, and even though there's no direct reference, you find that God is behind the scenes orchestrating everything that takes place. And what happens in Esther is a Gentile queen, Vashti, gets kicked off the throne and a Jewish queen, Esther, comes on the throne. Picture of the end of the times of the Gentiles. God took Vashti off the Gentile and put on a Jewish queen, Esther. And that is a picture in that book of in God's mind, the end of the times of the Gentiles. And in his mind, uh, he 's pretty much finished with the Gentile Church and Gentiles in particular. Now I know that people are still getting saved. We have a church to the Gentile we 're still doing what we do, and that's what, because we 're supposed to occupy the way comes we 're talking about how God views things. The Church of Jesus Christ has gotten so apostate that it wants nothing to do with God, and now God wants nothing to do with it. All you have left are a few pockets out there of Bible believers who are still doing the job that God is using in these last days. And that's why there's no great revivals anymore. Uh, the last great revivals were over 50 years ago. There's no great revivals today. There's no, there's no absolute you know, great revival in any country today. It's all gone. What God is doing is he's turning his attention to the nation of Israel being established and now bringing them back and getting them ready to go through the tribulation into the millennium. Our job is to glean a few grapes that are still out there on a disease-ridden vineyard. And, uh, and, uh, and, and if a pastor doesn't understand that, then he falls into the trap that most of them fall into that they think they i mean this mega church concept uh, i'm just telling you this mega church concept is nothing more than a pastor and people not understanding where they're at in relationship to the second coming of Christ and what God' doing, and they're actually building their kingdoms here because of the fact that they don't see the uh, the, uh, the the closeness of it all I mean the money that they spend. On buildings and all the things that they do, what could be done with that in their own city of reaching people uh, uh, for the cause of Christ? And but they put the emphasis on 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 buildings, and, and of course, you know, they could take they could take. You know, they spend, one church spent $180 million on a building. You know what? You could take $20 million, put up a big butler building, and do everything you wanted to do. But it doesn't have the grandeur, see? It doesn't have the attraction. And, of course, that's because that they think the attraction is in the buildings that they're building, when in reality, they're missing the fact that we are in the last moments of the last seconds of the last day, and we are to be gleaning the grapes off the vineyard as best we can and putting all of our resources, our time, and our money into people, not buildings. But that's, that's the mindset that we, we have today. And it's a thing where, you know, they, they've lost the whole concept of, of what the church is supposed to be doing today. And, you know, <clears throat> and it goes back to the fact that they lost their Bible. There's a lot of different reasons for it, but, <clears throat> but that, that's where we're at today. So they fall into the trap that they don't understand where they're at and what their job is. <clears throat> so they're thinking that they're going to be around forever. Now, this is why, just throw this in, this is why uh, a lot of these guys are going with the concept that the rapture is no longer a viable doctrine taught in the Bible, And if I was in their shoes, I'd take the same position because the rapture holds them accountable. So they try to not only get out of the accountability of the word of God, but any accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. And so they're living their lives, building their churches and doing what they're doing like, you know, they're in the middle of the Philadelphia church age and and don't don't get it because they can't place themselves. And the reason why they can't, dispensations. They can't figure out, what happened between the first coming of Christ and Acts chapter 7, and that will, that will tear apart you putting the Bible together anything else that you're going to do. Now, and this, in the church age that we're, we're in today, uh, our church age, that, that this is the eighth dispensation, you know, this will be preaching the preaching of, of Paul's gospel, or the gospel of the grace of God. And here's another problem. Not only is the word church messed up, And they don't get, but so is the word gospel. And I, you know, I've said it many, many times as a Bible believer, and you want to learn the Bible, you never come and look at the Bible from a, from a Christian standpoint. You always want to look at it from God's standpoint. Christianity is only 2000 years of a 7,000 year plan. And when you tend to just focus on that, then you tend to read everything in that 2,000 years throughout the rest of the Bible. That's why guys will tell you today that you know that the people in the Old Testament got saved just like the people in the New Testament. That's why they'll tell you that the people in the Old Testament look forward to the cross. People in the New Testament look back to the cross. That's where that comes from. And of course, if you know your Bible, nothing could be farther uh, from the truth. And the, the reality of it is, and this is where they fail, in the Bible, the, here it went, the word gospel means good news. And this mess starts with a misunderstanding uh, and a misapplying of the word gospel. And, uh, you know, it's like I said, so they take and view the word gospel that is our gospel, the grace of God, and they view it every time they find the word gospel as the same. And the truth of the matter is, when you if you want to, here again, divide it out, there are 10 different, distinct Gospels in the Bible. And if you don't see that and learn how to identify them and put them into the right context in the right dispensations, then this is where it all falls apart. Now, the first four Gospels are right in your Bible there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Everybody would say, and I get it, everybody would say, well, they're, they're all about the first coming of Christ. Well, keep in mind, the word gospel is not about the first coming of Christ, okay? Let's get it straight. The word gospel means good news. And Matthew, his gospel is about the good news that Jesus Christ coming as the king to the Jews. Mark's gospel is about the good news that Christ came as a servant, Luke's gospel is the good news that he came as the Son of Man, and John's gospel is the good news that he came as the Son of God. Four men writing about the same event, but giving four different good newses. <laughs> good newses, Four different revelations of it that are different. Four, four gospel. Once you see that the word gospel has nothing to do with Jesus Christ in particular, the word gospel simply has to do with good news about something. And so, once we get past the four Gospels there, which gives you a perspective on Christ from four different aspects, which is good news, then we have Paul coming on the scene in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the Gospel of the grace of God. That is the Gospel that we preach here in the church. Paul referred to it as my Gospel because it was given directly to him. Then you have the sixth one, Galatians chapter three, verse eight, the Bible says the gospel was preached unto Abraham. Now, you see, now you can better see it. When a Baptist preacher or whoever believes that the gospel is the same wherever you find it and doesn't understand how the word is used, when he read back there in Galatians three, verse eight, that the gospel was preached to Abraham, He automatically assumes now that that was the same gospel that you and I got preached to. So he builds from that the idea, there it is, Abraham was looking forward to the cross because when God took him out there in the stars of heaven and showed him all those things, he talked about the coming Christ and he was going to look for, that's what he was looking for. And of course, it sounds really good unless you know your Bible. Because in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, we're told that uh, all nations would be blessed uh, through uh, the nation of Israel. When he took Abraham out, his promise to him and the good news to him was that someday his seed was going to be like the stars of heaven. Had nothing to do with Christ. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, God's Hall of Fame over there, the Bible says that Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He didn't look at the cross. He was looking for a millennial and kingdom that was promised through his seed. But you see, it all comes back to that little definition of the word gospel. And when you go and get those little basic words right, now, this is why, this is why, You know, confession time. I I have a lot of messy issues in my life. I do. I don't keep my closet very well. I just throw shoes in there, jackets in there, clothes in there. They get a pile, and when the pile gets big enough, it moves itself. I guess I have no idea. I I I don't. I'm not. I'm a very. I'm a very uh, unorganized person in a lot of things in my life. My garage looks like Hiroshima right after the bomb dropped off. It's my desk downstairs. I can't find anything. It's there, but it's just under 100,000 pounds of whatever was there before it got there. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that I'm 100% absolute exact on, and that is the Bible. You have to be 100%. Once you start coming through the Bible and you realize the exactness of it, how the word gospel has to be defined, how the word church has to be defined, that you just cannot, when it comes to the Bible, you cannot take liberty to want to make it think what you want it to be. You have to come back to the Scriptures. There has to be, for us and the Bible, an exactness. God never did anything that wasn't exact and wasn't perfect. We have a tendency, because we're human, and it's a trait that has to be overcome and I'm not saying we overcome it totally but enough to get something out of the bible we have to overcome that attitude and we have to come to the place where when it comes to the bible it's exact and uh you have to you have to you have to hang on that thing man and that's why when they read that the gospel was preached to Abraham they just interpret the word gospel as the way that it was their gospel, therefore he's being told about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, therefore he's looking forward to the cross. There ain't nothing farther from the truth. Abraham knew nothing about the coming Christ. I've always said to these guys, well, if everybody in the Old Testament was looking forward to the cross and Christ dying, why in the world did they reject him? It, it doesn't make any sense. It's like the argument, with the sons of God in Jam- Genesis chapter 6 were saved people marrying unsaved people. Really? Then how come that these saved people didn't get on the ark? It, 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 your heresy breaks down when you step outside the exactness of the scriptures. You stay exactly with the principles, exactly with the definitions, exactly as best you can. You're never going to get off the scriptures. And when you don't, then you wind up thinking that the gospel preached to Abraham in Galatians was the gospel, the same gospel that you and I have, and of course, it wasn't. In Numbers chapter 13, and again in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2, uh, the good news that Joshua and Caleb gave to the nation of Israel, that was a gospel about going over the land. You have the gospel in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, that Christ preached to them, Uh, that we're in paradise. And here again, everybody uh, just assumes that that is a reference to uh, the Christ that already died on the cross. And of course, I'm not saying it was and I'm not saying it wasn't, but what I am saying is this, that it doesn't have to be. It could have been a dispensation that God gave them uh, because of where they're at. But you know what? There's not enough light on it to give it. But my point is, Every time you find the word gospel, it doesn't mean. The ninth one is found in Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 10. And this is called the gospel of the kingdom. Here again, here again, when when you get that and you read that, when you view the gospel wherever you find it in the light of what you think it to be in the church age, then again, you have them the gospel as the gospel of the grace of God, the gospel of the grace of God being preached before the Holy Spirit of God ever come, before the gospel of the grace of God ever been revealed. That's how stupid it is. But these guys don't look past their nose. They're not taught to. That's why they're all so shallow when it comes to the word of God. And of course, the good news in Matthew chapter 10 was the news that the king has come, Christ. And this is the sending out of the twelve. And if you find out when he sends out the 12, their ministry, it's a far cry from anything that we do in the New Testament church. That doesn't seem to bother them because they never go past and they never get a context of anything. Then in Revelation chapter 14, verses six and seven, you have the 10th one, and this will be the everlasting gospel. And this is preached in the tribulation period that actually brings in, Uh, the second coming of Christ and comes into the millennium that we know is is everlasting. And so there are your 10 gospels. They're not the same in any way, shape, or form. So the last thing that you want to ever do is read the word gospel and then always tag it to the gospel that we have in the church, because doing that will destroy any, any connecting of anything in the Bible. uh, And it just, it just won't work. And so without a New Testament biblical uh, dispensationalism, you're never going to lay it out uh, so, uh, and get it all put together in your Bible. You're just not going to. And so uh, once you see Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 7 is basically <coughs> a transition into the church age that didn't have to happen But it did. And I I don't know all the ramifications of it because it didn't happen. But obviously, if the Jews would have accepted Christ in Acts chapter 7, things would have been different. There may not have been a church age. You don't know. Christ is actually standing up to come back to the nation of Israel. Now, what that means to the church age, I don't know. But it wouldn't matter because here it is. He didn't reveal it to anybody anyhow. So we would have never known anything about it. We only know about it because it happened. If it wouldn't have happened, nobody would have known about it. It has stayed God's secret and God would have done whatever he was going to do and he'd have worked it out however he wanted to work it out. And I don't have the answers how he'd have done that because it didn't happen. But I'm fully confident that he would have had a plan that he'd have worked it out just the way he wanted it to go. (coughs) So you have to be able to see how that, Once the church age comes into effect, after Acts chapter 7, there's a transition that brings it up to uh, when Paul, through Paul's conversion, we see the final aspect of that transition and then Paul goes out in Acts chapter uh, 13 and now we find the three missionary trips and uh, the church is firmly established. So the church age... Now the dispensation of the church will run approximately two thousand years, and I say approximate because you don't, you know, you don't know, um, you don't know how all the time element is connected here. If if everything would have went the way the Bible laid it out, the rapture should have taken place in nineteen ninety seven, but it didn't. Now that obviously causes people. to disdoubt, you know, those kind of things. But, you know, it's a a thing where uh, they forget that in the book of Daniel chapter 2 that God tells us that he changes up the times. They also forget that back in the book of Judges, there's 80-some years missing back there that isn't counted in the genealogy of the time with Israel because God didn't count the time they were out of fellowship with God. So there's a number of factors who come in. To me... The greatest indicator is Matthew chapter 24 when it comes about the budding of the nation of Israel, the fig tree. That's pretty more localized than only a generation, uh, within a generation. And of course, generation can be a number of things. But it has to be a time period that somebody is alive who sees Israel become a nation in 48. So that kind of gives you a little better perspective on it. But it starts in the book of Acts and then runs up to the rapture of the church. And it's it's broken down for us, as God always does, uh, in the book of Revelation um, through seven periods of church history. So let's turn over the book of Revelation here and... Now, this is where most people fundamentally lose what I think is the greatest key to understanding the church age in the Bible, and it's the book of Revelation. And if there's one verse in the book of Revelation, if you don't get down, then it's like the word gospel or like the word, you know, church. If you don't get it, you're done. And it'll be verse 10 of chapter 1. Now John writes the book of Revelation and he's told to write in three tenses. He's told to write what has been, what is, and what shall be. Now everybody everybody can get that and then they get messed up from that point on because they miss verse 10. And it says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice, if it were a trumpet. And so... He's told to write in three tenses what has been, what is, and what shall be. But the key is he's taken up to the second coming of Christ when he's told to write these things. So if we would just look at it as it is, write the things that are, that would be John in 90 AD. The things that has been, uh, that would be the things that uh, were back before his time. And then the things that are going to be, that would be all the future things in the church age. And that's how most people try to teach the book of Revelation because they miss verse 10. Verse 10 tells you that he's in the, he's 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 taken up to the second coming of Christ. And he's told the to right, he's told to write in three tenses. What has been, that'll be the church age, what is the second coming of Christ, and what shall be the millennium. So you'll find everything in that category in those three aspects. That's why, like the book of Acts, two key chapters lay out the book of Revelation. The first one is Revelation 4, and the last one is Revelation 19. And just like the book of Acts is built around Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 20, the book of Revelation is built around Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 19. Because in the first three chapters we're going to see here, once he's told the right one has been, there we find our seven periods of church history. <laughs> In Revelation chapter 4, we'll see it in a moment, a door is opened in heaven. Door opens up two times in the book of Revelation. One in Revelation chapter 4, somebody goes up. One in Revelation chapter 19, and somebody comes down. In chapter 4, up to that point, you find the church like 21, 22 times mentioned. After Revelation chapter 4, uh, when somebody goes up, you don't find it anymore in the book of Revelation until you get toward the end that he's just closing out what he's saying to the churches that he's writing to. The second one is Revelation 19. The door opens in heaven and somebody comes down. That'll be the second coming of Christ. Now you got a lot of guys out there today that, as I said, they teach against the rapture of the church. I, I have to be absolutely honest with you. I, I, I've never understood how a guy in his right mind could come to that persuasion. Uh, other than he just doesn 't know anything about the Bible, and you know i 've known some guys who who knew the Bible pretty well and they get caught up in that but it 's a thing where to me it's such, it 's such number one it was the base fundamental teaching of the church for the last two thousand years. Are you going to tell me for 2,000 years the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Huguenots, the Policians, they got through the persecution of Rome looking for that day and then suddenly after what, 1,900, 1,950, 150 years, you show up and found out they were all wrong and God gave you the truth? Are you kidding me? So the first thing is it's been an established truth down through church history. The fact that some bozo today decides that isn't true means absolutely nothing uh, about the established truth of the Bible. Second thing is it's just everywhere through the scriptures in type and directly. I mean, first Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Thessalonians chapter four. I mean, and then in type song of Solomon. I mean, I could look you almost every book in the old Testament to show you a picture of the rapture of the church in type. And certainly when you come to the book of revelation, you cannot, you cannot get around that. And, uh, so we know that the church age starts in the book of Acts. We're going to say, ah, we'll say Acts chapter 20. We'll, we'll, stay, we'll stay with it where we know that that's a safe place. And it'll run up to the rapture of the church. And so, again, so you could keep track of it and get it down, you have to rightly divide it as the book of Revelation rightly divides it, and that will be that there are seven periods of church history. And this is totally unknown today, and as the book of Revelation is probably one of the mistaught books anywhere in the Bible. I mean, they, they're so far from the reality of it that you <coughs> try to get into the book. When you get into a book about, uh, like Revelation, you have to have, you have to have all the other exact things down, or you just, you go off into Pluto someplace, man. I mean, you just get out, out of space and never come back. I mean, that book demands that you're accurate with it and you're exact with it. Otherwise, you know, you're just, man, you're just really off wax on place. So we see in Revelation chapter 1 that John, now keep in mind, John is the type of the church, and he, we've talked about it before, how out of the 12, he's the only one that goes all the way, and he's the one that. Leans on the breast and hears the heartbeat of God, something that only you and I in the church age can do because we have the complete Word of God, which is the heart of God. We've been through all that. So he has chosen to write five wisdom books in the New Testament that go up against the five wisdom books in the Old Testament. He writes the Gospel of John, he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he writes the book of Revelation. God chose him as a type of the church to write the capstone of the Bible that for you and for me, the church should completely dispensationally understand everything the way John lays it out in the book of Revelation. And of course, we don't. And it's because of that that people get all messed up, whacked out, and, and get all kinds of bad stuff coming and taught out of the Bible. And As I said, in verse 10, he's taken up to the Lord's day, and in verse 19, he's told to write the things which thou hast seen, church age, and the things which are, tribulation and second coming, and the things which shall be hereafter. That's the millennium of Christ. And so once you see that, then you know that the book of Revelation takes on a completely different countenance. Now, historically, John is writing to seven churches that are in Asia Minor. Keep in mind now the word church. Doctrinally, these are seven churches in the tribulation period. Keep in mind the word church. Not a church like you and I are part of, a a tribulation church. A, a called out assembly within the tribulation. <coughs> but it's a church. It just isn't empowered as our church is. And of course, inspirationally, it's, it's a picture of, of our church, you and me what we do. And he starts in chapter 2, and here's what he says. He says, Under the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and thou cannot bear them which are evil, and have tried them which said they are apostles, and are not and found them liars. Now, this is the early church. This is your first church. This will run from around Acts chapter 20, which is around 60-some A.D., up to around 200 A.D., and these dates are only approximate. The name Ephesus means fully purposed. And here we have the early church that is right out of the hotbed of the apostles. They, have the, they are the closest thing that you could ever want to a church that still feels the heat of Paul, Christ, and the apostles. And I want you to notice that in this particular time, we find, uh, we find some, some church fathers showing up that are written about in history that I think are are very important. You have a guy by the name of Ignatius. He lives during this time. Polycarp lives during this time. Uh, Patheus lives during this time. Uh, A guy by the name of Clement of Rome lives during this time. And a guy by the name of Arrhenius lives during this time. Now, for the most part, as far as we can tell from what they write, these are all saved men. And... uh, some of them, like Polycarp and Ignatius, they get killed by the pagan Roman empire. they're martyred. and this is a good church, and it's fully purposed. it has everything that it needs to get the job done. but then he says that thou canst not bear them that which are evil which have tried them, which say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. Now we start to see the first Heresies begin to creep in with somebody coming in who claims to be apostles, who claims to be uh, connected to uh, to Christ in some way, and he says there first uh, he says that they found them to be liars. Now you'll find this uh, throughout the uh, you know the the church history aspect of this, and you'll find that. Uh, this church tries the spirits. It follows what the Bible says in 1 John uh, 4.1. Uh, it proves all things, as the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. And it has no problem, Romans 16.17, when it finds somebody a liar, marking them as liars. This is the good church. <coughs> it's following the scriptures Right down the line, and keeping the heresy out that's starting to creep in, but here comes the problem. Verse three, and and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. And of course, this church is a persecuted church by the Roman Empire; (coughs) they're persecuted for it. So up to up to verse three, he lists all the good things, and then we see we see the thing that killed the church in time. And it started, didn't start with Westcott and Hort. It didn't start with with the neo-evangelical crowd or the neo-orthodox. No, no, it started all the way back in the first church. Verse four, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. That is a reference to them leaving the Bible that they were told to hang on to. Now, I mentioned, I mentioned Irenaeus, I mentioned Polycarp, I mentioned Patheus, I mentioned uh, uh, you know, Clement of Rome and Irenaeus. I mentioned them because <coughs> they were all good, saved men, as far as we can tell. But what I want you to see is that with these men came the first deviation from the Word of God. And this is why I tell you over and over and over again we have to stay within the scriptures. We have to be exact. Because when you get creative and you start making up terms that aren't found in the Bible, the devil will take them in time, will, will use them. You take Irenaeus, he's a good man, he writes 15 letters. And in one of his letters, he's the first man to use the word Catholic. Now, he was no more Catholic than I am. He was using it in the classical literary style of the word Catholic means universal. And he used the word Catholic to portray Christianity. You never find a word Catholic in the Bible. You don't find anything even associated with it. And somebody says, what's the big deal? The big deal is 400 years later when a devil's church wanted to set itself up, it took the word from one of the born-again saved church fathers and called themselves Catholic. All because a good godly man deviated from the exactness of the scripture. Polycarp. He's martyred. He's burned at the stake. He's 86 years old. And he says, as he's being burned alive, he says, 86 years have I trusted him. I won't deny him now. Good man. He writes a number of letters. And in one of his letters, he simply makes the statement flippantly that the church is the mother of us all. And 400 years later, when the Catholic Church wanted to be called the Mother Church, guess where they go to prove it? Polycarp's writings. You can never afford to step outside the scriptures. We have Patheus. He lived during this time. He's a writer. He, tell, he, he, he comes to the point where he says that Christ was born in a cave, not a manger. So, around 300, 400 A.D., when uh, Constantine's on the throne and his mother, Helena is down in Jerusalem, she's walking down there through Jerusalem with the garage sales going on on a Saturday afternoon and goes to a cave, and guess what she finds? She finds the original uh, cave that Christ was born in. And the Catholic Church teaches to this day he was born in a cave. Where did he get it from? Patheos. Born again, blood-washed, child of God who just got creative when it came to the Word of God and got outside the Scriptures. You got Clement of Rome. He comes up with the idea of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine that the priest class should be over the common man. And then you got Irenaeus. He's during this time. His writings, he talks about how the water can wash away your sins. So when the Bible says they left their first love, it's simply telling us that this is where the first deviation comes in. In the first church, that sucker wasn't going 30 years that this stuff started to take place and started to happen. And the heresy crept in because good men who were saved decided not to be exact with the scriptures anymore, become eloquent in their writings, and become recognized and notarized as the great speaker and began to deviate from the clear, plain teachings of the Word of God to 300 years later, when the devil wanted to establish his church, he'd do it on the writings of the born-again church fathers in the church at Ephesus. Unbelievable. And you see, if you don't see that and understand that, then you don't have any appreciation for the exactness that you've got to have with the Bible. For you, it's just, you know, it's just it, it can be whatever you want it to be. And this goes back to what I said a couple of weeks ago that Christians are famous for doing today, and and Christians do it all the time. I I run into it almost every day of my life talking to somebody, how that they want to pick and choose what part of the Bible they want to believe. When it it works for them, then they'll believe this. When it doesn't work for them, they'll just conveniently forget this principle. That's what those guys did. And he says, remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, go back to your salvation is what he's saying. Remember how you got saved. And repent and do the first works. Get back to the book. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place. Notice the his reference to Christ. Except thou repent. But this that thou hast the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And this starts with... Clement of Rome, who starts the idea that the pastor should be elevated over the common people. Very slow process, but you'll see it develop here as we come through. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And of course, uh, he's talking about here Uh, Again, he says this several times, that if you've got ears and you're in the church, you better hear what he's saying. Uh, Then verse 8, our second church period. And unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and thy tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, for I know the blasphemy of them which say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, this second church, the Smyrnia, means bitterness or mirth, like uh, painkiller, bitterness, mirth. And it runs approximately around 200 AD up to around the Council of Nicaea, around 325. And again, these dates are all approximate, but within an easy time frame there. And of course, uh, um, this is a severely persecuted church. The Roman Empire on this time is on a rampage to wipe out Christianity. And, uh, and this will be the time of the uh, uh, 10 official Roman persecutions against the church. This is where they're taken into the Colosseum and in, uh, into Rome <coughs> and being hacked apart by the gladiators and by the lions and, and the wild beasts. And uh, notice that at this particular point in time, which is right around the time of Constantine, It says, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. This is the beginning of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church starts around 325 with Constantine. It develops by 400. Uh, It's built on the teachings of Augustine, who uh, basically taught that the Catholic Church took the place of the nation of Israel. And you're clearly told here that this group are taking the place of the Jews, and you're also told that this church is a synagogue of Satan. And uh, we begin to see now in this time period, begin to see things begin to develop a little bit as we come down through history. And he says, uh, "...fear none of those things which are that thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison." That shall be tried, and you'll have tribulation ten days. That's commonly a reference to the ten official Roman persecutions that took place, actually historically, during this time period. Uh, be thou faithful unto death. Many of them will, and I will give unto thee a crown of life. Now, this will be the this will be the martyr's crown, uh, the crown of the five crowns that you can get. This one you get by uh, giving your life as a martyr, and. Uh, this is where you start to see the teaching, uh, verse 9, not only are the people that say they are Jews with the Catholic Church, but this is where the, the teaching of the all-millennial and the post-millennial teachings come in that actually deny the literal return of Christ and either take it completely away or spiritualize it <coughs> because uh, you've got to do that when you, when you take all the things that God given to the Jew. Here again in verse 11, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt <coughs> of the second death. So again, in verse 11, he talks about the uh, the uh, having ears, hearing what the Spirit. Second death there in the next verse, obviously a reference to the great white throne of judgment for unsaved people. Uh, number verse 12, we see the third church period and unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write, uh, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my uh, my faith, even in those days wherein Antipodes was my faithful martyr, <coughs> who was swain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, this will be the Pergamos Church period, and the word Pergamus means much marriage. And this will pick up around 325, where the Smyrnia leaves off, thereabouts, and run us up to around 500 or the beginning of the Dark Ages. Dark Ages run from 500 to 1,500, 1,000 years in history. And uh, here, the word Pergamos means much marriage. And this is the time in history where Constantine, literally, when he comes to power through a series of events, marries the uh, church to the world. And he starts the Roman Catholic Church and by doing so, he brings in all the pagans uh, into the church. And this is why almost overnight, all the pagan temples become churches. All the Baal priests become Catholic priests. And everything changes almost with the wish of a pen. He passes the Edict of Milan, which allows all of these pagans to come into the church. They only have to commit to that they're now a Christian. And, of course, they bring in all their traditions with them. And that's why we have Christmas, we have Easter We have all of those holidays because they all came in uh, with the pagans when the Roman Catholic Church uh, started. And he literally marries the church to the world. And it becomes synonymous with the world. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, notice in verse 13, back in verse 9, you see the progression here. In verse 9 of the last uh, church... Uh, it was a synagogue of Satan. Now, in 13, in Pergamos, he has a seat. He's seated now. He has a literal, viable seat. And that seat will be the Roman pontiff or will be the pope. And that is Satan's seat. And uh, and he says, Thou holdest fast my name and have denied my faith even in those days. Uh, When Antipodes. Now this is a kind of a, to me has always been an incredible thing. Um, There isn't anywhere in the Bible and nowhere in church history, any writer anywhere that I ever read, (coughs) I read a few of them, uh, ever give you any light on Antipodes. And uh, it's a thing where I've asked myself many, many times (coughs) why he would include this in here. But knowing the way the scriptures unfold themselves sometimes and the way that God does things, there'll be times that he gives an unknown person in the Bible, like he'll say, a certain woman. She won't have a name. Or he'll say, a certain man, and he won't have a name. And when he does that, I've learned that reading the story in in almost every example he he's giving you a picture of what all Christianity should be involved in or doing by giving you under the under the guise of a of, of a certain woman with no name. If he puts a name to it, then the story has to follow a line with that person. If he doesn't, then the story is free to be applied to every woman or every man. And here he gives it a name, but it's a name that cannot be found anywhere down through history. And he simply says, who is my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. And of course, that would be Rome. <coughs> the name of Tipitus, uh, simply means against everything. And I've always looked at him as a, a great uh, example of what in the uh, church age that we are living in today the Laodicean, which is in the absolute terrible (laughs) mess that there is, um, that 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 is the job of a faithful child of God to be literally against everything. Because in Christianity today, across the board, there isn't much you can be on board with. And here's a guy who, if he lived today, he would be cast aside by the Christians like Ruckman was, or J. Frank Norris was. He'd be labeled a troublemaker. He'd be labeled this or labeled that. When and yet, uh, he's exactly what God requires of us in the day and age that we live, and that is to be against everything that's against God. And boy, does God's people fall short on that one. Then he says in verse 14, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hold down the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Now, the thing sacrificed to idols and to eat is the now Catholic Church coming up with the Eucharist or the host. That uh, you actually eat the body of Christ. And uh, the Catholic Church teaches that uh, the, pa- po- the, the priest has the magical power to take that wafer and turn it into the actual body of Christ. That when you eat it, that's the Catholic receiving Christ. That's why you never ask a Catholic if you've ever received Christ. He's going to say, "Yeah," in his mind. He's done it every time he went to mass, uh, because his your idea of receiving Christ is not his. Your idea is receiving it into your heart. His idea is receiving it into his mouth and eating it. And of course, uh, you know. So you you again, you want to understand what you're up against. And so this is the start during this time up to around 500. Uh, This is the time where the Eucharist comes into playing as a doctrine of the Catholic Church, the eating the sacrificial body of Christ. And, uh, you know, I've told you many, many times that the Catholic Church of the New Testament is nothing more than Baal worship of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Baal worship... Uh, they had human sacrifices where they drank people's blood uh, to their to Baal. You find that in Psalm 16 and many places in the Old Testament. Well, the devil knew that when he started his church from Baal worship to Catholicism, nobody was going to be into that. So he still wanted to keep cannibalism alive in the church, so instead of eating people, you just ate the body of Christ. But it's the same system. And, of course, uh, again, you know, Nobody ties all that together. Verse 15 says, So thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. I want to draw your attention back to the church at uh, uh, Ephesus in verse uh, 6. But thou hast, thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So in the early church, it was just the deeds started by Clement of Rome. By the time we get to 300 to 500, it's a doctrine, I want you to see that. The book of Revelation in the first three chapters is an incredible thing to show you this dispensation that we live in, the church age, and how that these things started out with just ideas, but as the devil established his church, they became official teachings and doctrines. And you cannot miss that. Repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, second coming of Christ, Revelation 19. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. There it is again. To him that overcometh, I will give the eat of the hidden manna, uh, and will give him a white stone, and a stone a new name, written therein, which no man knoweth. The hidden manna there, historically, most probably is the uh, early translations in English from Wycliffe and Tyndale, uh, and also the old Latin and the old Syriac, which was the true word of God that the church had, that the Catholic church was trying to wipe out. And, uh, and, of course, the white stone there, it probably is a reference to Christ. It's not real clear. But certainly the hidden manna would be the old Latin and the old Syriac. Um, that is the uh, typified as the Word of God in Exodus chapter 16. So, uh, and those were the only Bibles that they had during this period of time. A little bit later on, as I said, Wycliffe translates here about 1200, Tyndale about 1400. But during this time, all they had was the old Latin and the old Syriac um, that they used during this period of time, which was the hidden manna that God gave them. Uh, 18, and under the angel of the church in fire, Tyrerite, these things saith the Son of God. Uh, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and thy charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works uh, to be uh, last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding I have few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants and to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Now this will be the church from about 500 to 1,000. And the word thyro means uh, odor uh, of affliction. And at, uh, uh, this is where the church now up to around 300 or 500 was persecuted by the pagan Roman Empire for being Christian. Now they're persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church for not being Catholic. And uh, Rome outdoes its predecessors by the pagan Romes tenfold over. And uh, this is where the, uh, if you ever read the book, Fox Book of Martyrs, much of this takes place during this period of time. Uh, Interesting that he talks about verse 20, uh, Jezebel, uh, the prophecies. That takes us back to 1 Kings 16, right in the heart of Baal worship. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow with Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab being the wickedest king that Israel ever had. Jezebel, his wife, being the religious prophetess of Baal worship that destroyed uh, the whole nation. And you can see he's making a parallel to what she did to the nation of Israel in 1 Kings 16. The Catholic Church is just carrying on what she did in the church. You cannot miss the parallels. What dispensationalism does for you, it pulls together every parallel that helps you understand the connection between what God did in the Old Testament or what happened in the Old Testament to what's happened in the New Testament. Because the greatest lesson that you'll ever learn is history always repeats itself. And so you'll find a cycle of history coming coming to uh, uh, again. Behold, uh, I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. That'll be probably, in time history, 325 to 500 before she really got herself established. But she didn't do it. Um, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her in the great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Now, um, 22, uh, notice uh, she's likened to a woman that somebody has... Uh, commits adultery with in a bed and that will run us back to Proverbs 5, Proverbs chapter 2, and Proverbs chapter 7 where the religious whore, strange woman, whorish woman is actually uh, a religion. And the fornication here is spiritual fornication, not literal. And uh, verse 23 says, I will kill her children uh, with the death and uh, and that I uh, churches know that I am he who searches the reins and the hearts and I will give unto them everyone according to their works. The death here will be the uh, the black death which took place around uh, you know uh, uh, 900, uh, 1000 AD and uh, it wiped out almost three quarters of Europe and uh I told you before. Somebody asked me the other day, when uh, when somebody sneezes, the the standard answer is, you know, God bless you. And I told you, I don't know, several months ago, somebody asked that question on a Thursday night, that uh, you know, a lot of things that happen in life that people don't know where go back to church history or the Bible, and. Uh, when somebody sneezes and you say, God bless you, that actually goes back to the black death in the Roman Catholic Church, that uh, one of the first signs of getting sick when the black death was at its worst was to, to start, you know, having the sniffles and sneeze. And when somebody did, the Catholic counterpart would say, God bless you, like, to bless you, not to get the black death. So, somebody <laughs> says when I sneeze, somebody says God bless you. I always give them that, you know, keep the demons away. Uh, it's a thing where most people don't know why. It, of course, it means absolutely nothing today, but you want to know those things, you know. So, I would have people now that when you sneeze, they'll catch themselves, you know. Oh no, no, you know, you know. Here's a Kleenex. That's always better. But it's a thing where <clears throat> a lot of these things start that way. This is where the little children's thing comes out, you know. Um, ring around the rosies, the pocket full of posies, you know. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Uh, little kids singing that—that's out of the Black Death. Uh, ring around the roses, rosies, uh, pocket full of posies. The rosies were the big red blotches that got on your face, and of course they burned them when they died. So all that stuff comes out of out of the history, you know. That's a little bit of trivia there. You don't have to pay me for that extra. I'll just throw that in on the deal. Uh, verse uh, 24 But unto you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, Baal worship, Roman Catholicism, and which have not known the depths of Satan, that's the Roman Catholic Church, as they speak, I will put on you no other burden. But thou, uh, but that which thou uh, have already, uh, already, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh, will I keep my works to the end. To him I will give power over the nation. Now you can see where this he keep going back, and there's a little tribulation in that thing under the end, you know. But again, you got to remember, this is his. This is doctrinally seven churches in the tribulation period. So going to come back and forth. When you know that, then you can you can rightly divide what you're reading and know where to put it and where not to put it. But you gotta know those concepts, you see. And uh, and of course power over the nations is Revelation chapter 19, when he comes back at the second coming. Uh, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, obviously a reference to the millennium um and and partners shall be broken to shivers even as I received my father and I will give unto him the morning star. Now, uh, if you, I would say that obviously in the doctrinal application, the morning star would be Christ. He's the day star. If you want to put it into a historical application, the morning star would be uh, would be Wycliffe, who was one of the early, around 1200, one of the first men who translated um, the Bible from the Old Latin and Syriac into English, which was the first of the several Bibles that became the King James Bible. So he was the early translator that was the light in the dark ages, so to speak. And so he's called the morning star historically. But Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, we know it to be Christ doctrinally. Just so you know that. And uh, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches... Now, the next one here is under the angel of the church in Sardis, right? Chapter 3. These say, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God, and hath the seven stars, I know thy works, (coughs) and thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore, Uh, Thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I come upon thee. Uh, Thou hast a few names even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white uh, that are worthy. Now the Sardis is around 1,000 to 1,500. It brings us to the last half of the Dark Ages up to about the Reformation. And uh, Sardis means red ones. And in history, you know, literal history, this was some interesting times. This will be the, uh, Wycliffe translates his first very early English translation. This will be a time of the Crusades uh, that take place. Uh, We find that John Hust is preaching in Central Europe. Savonarola, who's a Roman Catholic monk, uh, gets saved and, and preaches on the streets um, uh, And uh, he, you know, it's it's an incredible time. <coughs> so we see all this happening. And verse four says, "Thou hast a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments, and they walk shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." Those names would be historically would be the Bible-believing groups. A few names that would be like the Huguenots in France, the Waldensians in Italy. Uh, the Albigensians in France, the Lombards in North Italy, uh, the Bogomiles, uh, Anabaptists by the time we get up to around the end of it. And, uh, and of course, these are the few names that haven't defiled themselves with the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, so it's, a again, we're, we're seeing a progression here. And this is why it's so important to break church history down into some kinds of periods. God shows seven which is his number. And, uh, you know, we see this move all the way through as we come through here. And again, verse 6, you know, (coughs) he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Then we come into the, verse 7, and the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Now, this will be the Philadelphian church. This will be number six. And obviously, Philadelphia means brotherly love. And uh, this runs from about 1600 or the Reformation. Reformation is about 1550, 1560, uh, up to about 1900. And uh, this will be the start of the Reformation, the, the demise temporarily of the Roman Catholic Church and in, a, in a, the entrance to the, the, what would be called the golden age of Christianity, this is the time period where uh, the King James Bible gets translated out by 1611, 1603. 1611, 1603. Uh, England is power now. She rules the seas. And she actually takes the King James Bible around the world four or five times. And she is the greatest sea nation on the planet at that point in time. She had defeated Spain, who was. And now she's got providences and colonies everywhere in the world. In fact, as I've said many times, the saying at this point is, the sun never sits on the British soil. And she's just a small island about the size of Texas if you stretched it out. Now she's, she runs the world. <coughs> and she runs the world. The missionaries go in, and they all take a King James 1611 authorized version. Notice in verse 7, it says um, that she has the key of David. The key of David will be, for you and for me, will be a Psalms 119. That was David's key. Psalms 119 is the key to you and I learning the Bible. It was David's key. And every verse in there is 176. Every verse in there is a different verse on how to love or use or do something with the Word of God. So it's an incredible uh, chapter. The key of David was David's love that opened up everything. And he says that he that openeth and no man shutteth and shutteth and no man openeth. This period of time has been called the church of the open door and no man could shut it because it was opened by the preaching of a King James 1611 authorized version. And uh, you know, in our own history, you don't find it much anymore, but when I was coming up, you actually found Baptist churches that were called Open Door Baptist Church, and they were based on, on that verse. And uh, you don't find that much anymore. If you do find one, it's one that probably has way straight off, and, you know, the pastor's long dead, and they just keep the name of it. But but this was the greatest period of time in history that went about 400 years, and it was it was called the Church of the Open Door and God opened it, and no man could shut it. And the open door was the open preaching of a King James 6, 11 authorized version. Now, any church today can claim that. Our church, I, when I started the church, I claimed that. And it's the fact that our church has an open door. Uh, people keep getting saved. People keep coming in. Uh, you can get all the Bible you want. Uh, God is obviously, uh, we, we jokingly laugh and call this the little church that could. I mean, we're around the world. I told you that in the Philippines, 128 pastors just got all our material, just going through the Philippines with it. We got people in in Holland. We got them in Africa. We got them in England. We got them everywhere. And um, it's a thing where uh, who would believe that a little church in the basement of a bomb shelter uh, in an antique mall would impact the world? It isn't about the church. It's about when you have the right book, I don't care if you're meeting in a phone booth, you become the church of the open door. And no man can shut it. And uh, he says, verse 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength. And here's the key. And hast kept my word, and not denied my name. Notice how the word and the name are, some, are one and the same here. Just like John 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews. Be a direct reference to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, uh, they are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them come and worship before thy feet and know that I have loved thee. This is when the Catholic Church almost goes out of business. She, uh, the devil had a plan and she regains herself, but for a period of time, she is on her knees. She's knocked down, boy, and it's knocked down hard. And, um, you know, verse 10, because thou hast here again, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. That's the word of God. I will keep thee from the hour of temptation. Now, the hour of temptation will come around about 1888 to 1900. And the hour of temptation will be for this church to dump God's word and take a RSV, an ASV of 1901, or any Bible off the Greek text of the Roman Catholic Church, Sinaitis or Vaticanus. The hour of temptation will be the devil's Bible versus God's Bible. The hour of temptation will be to dump the common man's knowledge of the Bible for scholarship. And of course, that's exactly what many of them do. But the guys who stayed faithful with it, they were kept from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all world and them to dwell upon the earth. Uh, he says, Behold, I come quickly, <clears throat> hold fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. That is the clearest place in the Bible that says that if you give up your King James Bible and follow the West and Hort and the Jezebel theology, you're going to lose your crown with the judgment seat of Christ. End of story. Over there in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, we're told not only to keep our crowns here, but we're told that no man take your garment showing up naked at the jumbo seat of Christ. Second Timothy chapter three, verse five says that no man is crowned and rest he run lawfully. And you cannot run lawfully without God's word. It's just as simple as that. That is so clear and plain, you ask yourself, how can guys not see that? Because I gave it to you last week I'll give it to you tomorrow. I gave it to you last week. Ezekiel 14, you want a lie to believe, God will give you one. And they got one. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. Now there's a clear idea that he's connected to the church here because the church is what gets New Jerusalem. Nobody else. It's to the church, the bride. Clearly connecting all this to the church. which coming down out of heaven for my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Um, uh, my new name. Uh, He that hath an ear uh, and now historically um, when he says I will write upon him my new name that probably is the final name that they got. And this is a study in itself. Uh, For a while they were called by the name of the guy that they followed. Later on in the dark ages they were called by the by the Uh, geographical landmass that they were from and then later on they got a new name which was based on the doctrine that they fought Pedro Anabaptist Anabaptist and then finally the new name that stuck was Baptist probably what it's a reference to historically and so again he says he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches and then we move into the last one (coughs) Laodicea and of course this means justice or rights of the people and this starts around 1900 and runs up to the time period that we're alive in today, 2019. We'll go up to the rapture of the church. And he says, And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful, and the true, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works. Thou hast neither uh, cold nor hot. I would rather that were cold or hot. So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. This church will now stand for the most Baptist churches. It'll stand certainly for the neo-evangelical churches that they still fundamentally profess salvation. But they're not hot. They're lukewarm. They're in the middle. And God says, I'd rather have you be in total apostasy or totally on fire. God has no place for lukewarm Christians. Now, you need to write that one down. You make him sick. And here's a, here's a group that, that the church that is not completely an apostasy, but they're nowhere where they need to be. And this has commonly been called the church that made God sick. They care more about their own rights and their own justice than they do God's rights. And he says, uh, because thou sayest. Now here is the, the most crystal clear picture of where we are at today. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, poor, spiritually poor, miserable, Ain't happy, no joy in their life. Wretched, losing their families. Everything in their life is upside down. And then he says, blind, <laughs> can't see anything out of the Bible. And the last thing he says is naked. That's the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians five five. So this church is completely away from what God wants them to be. They can't see their true condition because they have believed the lie. And uh, they actually think that uh, they're rich, they're increased with goods, and they have need of nothing, that that is the blessings of God. And that's every megachurch in this country or this world. And in truth, they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. <coughs> that's the state of Christianity today. God's advice, verse 18, I counsel thee to buy... Of me, gold tried in the fire. The word buy there in the aspect of in an investment. Investing yourself in what God wants you to invest in. Gold, but not just gold. Gold tried in the fire. Go through some things. That thou mayest be rich. The real true riches is gold that's purified by what you go through for him. Not what you got in the bank. That thou mayest be rich. And white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Now, there's the other key word, appear. Bible says over there in Romans, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the nakedness is going to appear right there. I mean, that's 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, Revelation 16 15, and 2 Timothy 2 15, all wrapped up for you in one verse. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, here's the great verse that you'll want, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is the only verse in the Bible that this is a literal door on a church building. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice. And open the door. I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Clearly showing you that the church today has kicked out Jesus Christ, closed the door on him, and he's beating on the door trying to get back in. That's the church of Jesus Christ today. To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. And then he closes this out. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, there you got the eighth dispensation, the church age, broken down for you with all the key aspects that you need to understand. And uh, you got a month to get that one down and uh, get that in your Bible, get that in your notebook. Uh, last time and this time are really the key especially last time, because that's where it's at, you know, uh, gives you the understanding of where we're at today. You see now that you're right to divide the church age into seven periods. And uh, that's, that's how you do it. So we'll hold up.